Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit to enlighten, to illumine, illumine the word that we might understand it. Would you be pleased to work that in our hearts even as I try uh, in the power of your spirit to speak your words after you to explain your scripture? God, would you be with me? Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you speak through me to your people? And uh, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you come now in Jesus' name, amen. So the title of my sermon today is really showing the two parts of the text. There is the coming of Zion's king, which is the first part, the first several verses. And then there is this hard, and we're going to get into it, but glorious call from Jesus. And so, let me start with this quote from Henry Scoggle, a theologian from the 1600s. He says this, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Think about that. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. If my greatest love in this life is a sports car or my home or even my family, we're talking about some good things here, or perhaps a sports team, then the value of my soul will be diminished by the smallness of the object I have chosen to love and worship. If I love my own life more than all else, I will live for it, and the smallness of that versus the greatness of God's kingdom and God's purposes. And so, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Don't know what that was. Henry Scoggle also said this. Now, remember, he's writing in the 1600s, but there should be another quote here. Never does a soul know what solid joy and substantial pleasure is till once being weary of itself, tired of itself, it renounces all property, property being all the things it cherishes and gives itself up to the author of its being. Never can we know the joy. See, there's, there's three problems in this life. 
There's three things that stand in the way of your joy, ultimate, unbelievable joy, and my joy. Those three things are this. Nothing in this life, nothing in this world has personal worth great enough to meet your deepest desires. There's nothing. None of those things I mentioned, nothing else. None of it will meet the deepest desires of your heart. That's the first problem with this world. The second problem is this. We lack the strength and the enlightenment to savor the best treasures that are of maximum worth. We lack the ability to treasure those things. And then third and finally, our joys here in this world come to an end. Even if you do find joy in them, ultimately they don't last. And so, in our text today, there is a hard but glorious call to move away from the things that we're finding our deepest joys in. And there is this call to come and die. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies. There is a call in our text today to come and to serve. A call to hate our life in this world. The call is to love God and his glory more than we love our own lives. These are hard words. Who can hear them? However, our friend Henry Scoggle has said, once we abandon ourselves and abandon our small lives, there's a chance for real, true, everlasting joy. Gladness in God himself. So I said there are two parts to our text today. And it's interesting because the same thing keeps happening over and over. And here's, the th- here's what I mean by that. Is Jesus in the beginning of our text is entering into Jerusalem. This is the time. All along through the Gospels, he says, my time has not yet come. And he'll slip away before they can get to him. But now, his time has come. And he's coming into Jerusalem. And we see that in the beginning. And the people as always, it seems, are thinking in their mind, the the Messiah is coming. He's going to set up a political reign. He's going to conquer the Romans. He's going to set us free. And so we see them with palm branches celebrating in triumph. He's coming. But you know what he does? It's what Jesus always does. Once he gets there, he turns it on its head. He turns them on their head. And he says, if you really want to live, you got to die. If you really want to lead and be great, you got to be a servant. Let's look at this. 
Look at John 12, 12 through 13. If you would look there in your Bibles with me at John 12, 12 through 13, it says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. I don't know about you, but if I'm just honest, when I read that, I didn't grow up in biblical times. I'm like, why would you grab branches of, I mean, branches of palm trees? It doesn't make sense to me, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. They were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and even the king of Israel. You may not know this, but they're quoting Psalm 118, 25 through 26. The Jews knew that psalm well. It was a psalm that was celebrating the coming of the Messiah, the long-awaited king. However, for the Pharisees and the high priest, this is the nightmare that they've been dreading. And here's the question. Will Jesus finally walk into Jerusalem and take over? Or will he walk away again and say, my time has not yet come? Well, if you look at John 12, 14 through 16, you get the answer to that question. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Zion was a hill in Jerusalem. It was the hill of David. And so it was considered to be the hill of the Jews. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered, and these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the question is, is Jesus going to embrace or is he going to slip away again? The answer is, he's going to embrace it this time. The time has come. He's moving into Jerusalem to accomplish what the Father in him had planned from all eternity. It is time to redeem man from his sin. And so, it's heightened because he's choosing to fulfill a prophecy here. In Zechariah 9, 9, over a thousand years before Jesus does this, he chooses a donkey in that prophecy to ride into Jerusalem. And so when they're asking the question, is he going to walk away or is he going to come in? The answer is he's going to come in riding that donkey just like it was prophesied. This is the king of the Jews. Now, why would they take branches of palm trees? In the time, which was about 400 years, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, called the intertestamental times, or the intertestamental period, palm branches became a symbol of victory and celebration. There was a man by the name of Simon of the Maccabees. You can study it in history. He came and he recaptured Jerusalem from the Syrians. And when Simon of Maccabee did this, 
What did they do? They waved these palm branches as a sign of triumphal victory. And so the people, the Jewish people, still remember this. And now here's the messianic king coming into Jerusalem. So what do they do? Symbolically, they grab those palm branches and they begin to wave them as to say, our king has arrived and he will come and deliver us from Rome. Swept up in the fervor of the moment, the crowd shouts, another word that I didn't grow up in the church, and so for years early on, I didn't know what this meant. By the way, just as a side note, sometimes I feel like some of us that may not have grown up in the church are here, and I may be telling you different verses to turn to, and if I were you, when, I, when that used to happen to me, I would begin to sweat bullets out there. Because I did not know where the text was. And you know people are looking at you going, he doesn't know where the text is. He doesn't know, you know, his Bible. Well, here's, here's what I learned, and I hope you will do this. Just turn to the very beginning of the Bible, there's an index. And it'll give you all the page numbers, and you can go, and nobody will even know you didn't know. And if they did, you'll just say, get over it. All right? That way you can at least be right there with us as we're going through the verses. But I lose my place. I have no idea what I was talking about before I said that. <laughs> Did you say we didn't either? <laughs> oh, I'm talking about palm branches and why they did it. That's what I was talking about. But also said they were swept up in the emotion and they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is a term of acclamation of praise. It literally translates, help, I pray. And it also can be translated, save us now. Help, I pray. Save us now. It comes from, and, and many of you probably don't realize this, but in Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, it's called the Hallel Psalms. It means Psalms of Prayer. And the Jewish people would pray these Psalms often. If you just go to 113 through 18 one day, you can read their prayers. Those are the actual prayers of the Jewish people. And they were called the Psalms of Hallel. And they would pray these. And this is coming. What they're saying to Jesus as he's entering into Jerusalem is coming right out of those texts. Look with me at John 12, 16. It says there, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then, and you know what it means when it says Jesus was glorified? I don't want to read just right over that. It means that after he's been crucified, put in the tomb, comes out, and goes back to be with the Father. That's when Jesus was glorified. It says, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So my question when I read that is, what were the disciples not understanding? They've been with him now for three solid years, and it says they didn't even understand this. 
What did they not understand? Well, they didn't fully grasp the kingdom. They still were questioning, wondering, what is this kingdom that he is talking about going to look like? I mean, think about it. How could they really know that he was going to have to be crucified, dead, and then he was going to raise again, and that the kingdom wasn't really going to be what they could see, feel, and touch? It was going to be a spiritual kingdom. And so they still didn't get it until after he was glorified. Now, John 12, 20 is another interesting part of our text. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, not all of us may know this, but if you're not Jewish... You are a Gentile. All of us fit in one of those two categories. You're either Jewish or you're a Gentile. Now, Gentiles are made up of all kinds of people. And the Greeks came because they wanted to see Jesus. The Greeks are asking to see him at the Passover. My question, and maybe yours, why here? Why now? Why did the Greeks show up now? Why didn't they show up back here somewhere? The answer is, my time has come. I'm here to do what I've been called by the Father to do from all eternity. I'm not just here. I'm not just here for the Jews. I'm here for the world. I've come for the world. For all my people. So the Greeks show up. And I think it's God's way and the author of John, it's his way to underscore Jesus is coming not just for the Jews, but he's coming for the world. He's coming for his people. And so that's why I think they show up now. That's why John introduces the Greeks and he makes this comment right where he does. So Jesus is and has now triumphantly entered into Jerusalem on a donkey just like Zechariah 9.9 said he would, right? Here comes the second part. Here comes the twist that Jesus seems to always bring. Look at, look at John 12, 23 through 26. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So looking at that text, how will the Son of Man be glorified? How will that happen? Jesus is saying, through death.
I'll be glorified through death and hating my life in this world. Not only is Jesus talking about his death, but he's talking about the disciples' death. That's why he turns to them and does this law of the kingdom. He teaches them right here a law of the kingdom of God. And you know what the law that he teaches them is? He says in a parable, just as a seed must die in order to give life, likewise, I will die in order to give life. Not only will I die, guys, but you're going to have to die to give life and bear fruit. A law of the kingdom of God is this. To relinquish one's hold on life, to give it up, is the key to participation in the kingdom of God. To relinquish control of your life, to give up your life, is the prerequisite for participation in the kingdom of God. You must die that others can live. You must surrender yours that he may live his life through you. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to do it. I'm going to model it for you. I'm going to die here in just a few hours so that you can see what I'm saying. The time is at hand. The hour is here. The cross is waiting. This is really hard stuff. To understand this even better and how hard this is, I want us to look at another gospel. And it's the same time period. It's Mark 10, 35 through 45. Mark 10, 35 through 45. Now, in this story... We're just a few hours ahead of where we are in the story that we've been reading. Jesus is now, and this is important, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is on his way to the cross. In Mark 10, 35 through 45, it's a longer passage, but it's a story. Let's read it together. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, I got to emphasize this one more time. Jesus is on his way to be murdered when this happens, okay? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> that right there is astounding. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It feels so full of themselves. So arrogant. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, 
you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten, the ten other disciples, because there's two of them asking the question, when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, the Romans, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John are not asking for a place to lay down their lives for the sake of Jesus or the gospel. That's not what they're asking. They're not asking for a place that they can die and give their life away. James and John are basically asking to be famous. James and John are asking to be able to wield power. They're asking to have respect, acclaim, importance. They're asking for a position of honor in the kingdom. Let one of us sit at your right and one of us sit at your left. And in the book of James 4, 6, it says, God helps those who humble themselves. The kingdom of God flips leadership on its head. D. Jepson. May not be anybody in the room who knows that, who that is. Maybe Bob. She's a chairman of the Board of Regent University currently. She's in her 80s. She was formerly the public liaison to President Ronald Reagan for women's organizations. She's authored several books and was married to a senator, Roger, Roger Jepson from, Ohio, from Iowa. This is something she said. Follow along here. One day, I was privileged to sit at the table next to Mother Teresa of Calcutta. I had long admired her and her work with the destitute and dying in Calcutta and throughout the world. The Capitol Hill luncheon in her honor was held in the ornately decorated Senate caucus room in the Russell Building. <clears throat> As she entered, she seemed dwarfed by the enormity of the room. She was even tinier than I had expected. As she walked into the room, clad in a simple blue and white habit, I saw some of the strongest leaders in the world rise to their feet and applaud her with tears in their eyes. They were honored simply to be in her presence. Here was a woman who obviously had tremendous power. She possessed more power than those who walked the marble halls of Congress. 
She had more power than I had seen in this city of power. How had she done it? I asked myself. She owned nothing. Never shook her fist in anger for her rights. She had reached down into the gutter and raised up and loved those the world called unlovable. And she had done it simply because the poor were created by the God she loves and serves. All of us that day were humbled in her presence because we knew how full of ourselves we really were. God in his wisdom had once again used the simple to confound the wise. He had elevated this little woman to a place of international recognition and honor. God uses those who humble themselves. So Jesus tells the disciples, you do not know what you're asking. You're asking for pain. When James and John come and say, put one at our left, one at your right. Jesus is really saying, you have no idea what you're asking me. You're asking for pain. You want to be great in my kingdom? It's going to hurt. Matter of fact, you're asking for servanthood. All of us like to be called servants until we're treated like one. And then he says, you're really asking for death. Death to your life. You think you really want that? And after this, the ten disciples, they hear all this. They're indignant is the word that the scripture uses. There's anger. There's annoyance. There's this resentment towards the other two. And in uh, our men's study, women's study too, we've been studying Third John. Verse 9 says this. I've, John, the same author, but in a different book. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. Listen to what John called that, told that guy. This, this is how he refers to this guy. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. There's no place for self-glory or self-promotion in God's kingdom. God will honor those who serve and die to themselves for his kingdom. And then in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So here's the question. First Baptist Church Chattahoochee, how well are we dying? Every time I do that, I get that. I'm sorry. How well are we dying to ourselves? What about you? Switching gears to illustrate this. When Luke Skywalker, did I just say Luke Skywalker? When Luke Skywalker takes the mask off of Darth Vader, he sees a glowing white head that is disfigured 
and honestly, hard on the eyes. Even so, when we take a real honest evaluation of ourselves and how well we are dying to ourselves, it's hard to look at. It's hard to see that sin. Because much of our life, even as Christian, is spent in this world self-promoting, glory-seeking, name-dropping, jockeying for position, much like the disciples or diatrophies, we seek to put ourselves first. It's just human nature. How can we see it? How can we escape the insidious traps of self-importance? so that we might find true life and bear spiritual fruit? The answer's in our text. Die. Hate your life in this world. Die. If you die to yourself and you promote others, you have a chance to live. And not only that, but when I said in the beginning... The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. You know what Jesus is doing in this text? He's saying, there's nothing in this life. When I'm riding in on this donkey, you're thinking I'm going to reign as king and I'm going to create this political world and everything's going to be hunky-dory for you because I'm going to smash the Romans and make your life great. But in reality, what I'm coming in to do is to help you see that the only way you're really going to find deep joy is if you treasure me and my Father more than anything else in the world because the excellency of a soul is measured by what it values and loves the most. He's showing us this is the way This is the way to joy. This is the way to complete happiness. That is why, and this is an interesting thought, that is why Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are up in heaven, even with all this junk going on down here, and they are gloriously happy. They are. And out of their fullness of their happiness overflows creation and joy and goodness and all that is right and true and beautiful because if God doesn't love himself, which is the only thing in the world that is worthy, then it's all for naught. And so God, it sounds egotistical, but he's God. He's loving, in loving himself, he's loving the only thing that is truly good. And that is our only hope. And so God in this text is saying, die to your selfish ambition. Die to your own life so that you can live and others can live. That's what he's saying. The kingdom is about dying to self. 
So let me ask you this. Just an application, and here's the thing that I'm scared to death of, and I want to just go ahead and say it up front. When I say any kind of application, some of you in your heart decide what I'm saying is you got to go do better. You got to go do right. You got to go be good. And what I want you to hear is, that's baloney. That's not true. The only thing that is going to give you the motivation that you need is the gospel. It's understanding that you're forgiven if you're his. And no matter how bad you think you can screw it up, you can't screw it up. Because he's God and he loves you. And it is out of that motivation that we serve him. And so let me give you some application. If your prayers were answered today, would it benefit anybody other than you? In other words, how much time do you spend praying for other people? Is it just kind of about you and your family? Would anybody benefit from your prayers? Because someone who is dying to self, someone who is humble, prays. And they pray for other people. They give of themselves willingly for the sake of others. That's a dying to themselves person. What about this? I think in church sometimes we come in and it's like everybody puts on the face, the mask. It's the Darth Vader mask that looks really cool. It's not the one that's ripped off with the white disfigured face, which is really who we are. We just put the Darth Vader mask on and we come in here. How are you? Oh, I'm just lovely. I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Bull. That's hogwash. We're not always doing lovely and great. We're sinners. We're broken. We're hurting. What I hope and what I think a person that is dying and humble, dying in the sense of this text, falling in the ground, that, that fruit can come, is that we share our weaknesses with one another. Because when I share my weaknesses with men, they connect with me. But when I share my strengths, they compete with me. We've got to get away from this false religiousness and be real people, be authentic people that can enter into one another's pain and love and help and, and be real. These are all ways to figure out, are we dying to ourselves? A third way is, I think human nature, apart from a work of God, is to be a self-promoter. You got to get ahead, you know, and I think that's what we do. But the best leaders and those that know the Lord and have the Spirit of God in them are promoters of other people. In other words, 
I want to spend my life reaching like Mother Teresa down perhaps into the lowest places in Calcutta and grabbing people and pulling them and letting them step on my face with their muddy shoe and pushing them up above myself, promoting other people over myself. That's a person that's dying and humble. They're not near as concerned about promoting themselves as they are about promoting other people. And I think that was the power of her story. So the question in closing that I have for you, where and how are you dying? Are you really dying to yourself? Are you hating your life in this world that other people may find life? Or is it just about you? Let's pray to that end.